but how the world turns. One day cock of the walk, next to feather dust. Play something tan-tan, something tragic. Do you know who I was? Nobody. Except on the day after, I was still alive. This nobody had a chance to be somebody. So much for history. Anyway. Hello, listening people. Hello. Hello, Bartek. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. How are you, Ryan? I I made a decision. And so my heart is feeling the burden of that decision, which is I was tossing up whether or not I should open up this podcast talking in that annoying way that the children do in this film that we're about to discuss <laughs> and or in the really fun exciting way that the uh, Dr. Feelgood character does in this in this film where he talks about the Thunderdome and just the way he talks is like this mm. and I decided not to do either of those because I don't want to put in that much effort and so I feel like my heart is empty but also it dodged a bullet there because I think it would have killed me to have done it. I don't think you should be going too hard on yourself, Brian. It's a special day. (sighs) It's a special day. So we are Spit and Polish Presents likingly because we are always spitting and we both happen to be Polish. And on this podcast, we talk about movies, specifically on Pictures Powwow, that's the name of this show, where we sit down and discuss a film that one of us has recommended. We have a cycle of recommendation where one week it will be a recommendation from Bartek, the one after that from myself, and then yes, you the listening people get to recommend films to us. We put it in a list and then we get around to them. And so This particular one is a recommendation from me, and if you can read the title, you know that we are proceeding forward with the Mad Max filmography, because last year, at the start of last year, I said, I want to revisit the Mad Max movies, and I know you, Bartek, haven't really had the chance to go through them. I'd seen the oldest one and the newest one. So let's watch them, and it's been a while now since we've we touched knocked, base we with We knocked them. the first two out pretty quickly, mm-hmm. and now it's been over a year, I think. Is that correct? It's been over a year since our discussion of the second one? That makes I, sense. I don't want to be quoted on that, but it Quote feels him like on it. That. <laughs> so we are talking about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, or simply Mad Max 3, if you want to be that particular way. And if you have not seen the third Mad Max movie, and you are worried about being spoiled on what happens within it, well, tough shit, we are going to go over it. You can watch it for yourself, and heck, Bartek, you hadn't seen this before, right? No. But you now have. For someone out there who's just scratching their head going, look, I've heard some word of mouth about beyond Thunderdome, but I actually don't know what it's about. What would you say to those people? If you just had to give them your your sales pitch on the the like the plot and what goes on in this, what would you say to them? Sure. Um I would say that's a bit of a tricky one because there are things I would want to say to be accurate to its full premise, but also Yeah. It, it it's kind of a film in, in two parts where the first part deals with a very uh, kind of faithful to Mad Max type of story where it's about uh, Max continuing on his journey of being this lone road warrior in the desert, 
coming across a town called Barter Town. Because mm-hmm. they barter. Because they're bartering for things. Barter. That's one of the words that autocorrects from my name. Correct. Um, He comes across this town and he, because he, he thinks that his vehicle has been sold there because he'd recently been robbed of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he makes a deal with the leader of the town uh, to try to get the vehicle back that involves fighting someone in the Thunderdome, where mm-hmm. two men enter, one man leaves. Um, and so the first part of the film is kind of just dealing with that plot of trying to uh, learn who his opponent is and, you know, taking them down. And, you know, you have all sorts of, like, Mad Max wacky characters as you oh, would, of course that you, you would expect if you've seen The Road Warrior. And then, as you say, it's a film of two parts. They spin a wheel and the genre of the film goes with that wheel spin as well. And let's not give this away too much to the people. If you haven't yeah. seen it, all I'll say is... It embraces more wholeheartedly the the folk tale, fairy tale esque stuff that the second film was of like putting in there a little bit because that was a part of the joy of the Road Warrior was there was this mm. underlying but not too explicit feel of this is a, like a legendary folk hero that, yeah, that has film, existed. It had like a oh, I'm forgetting a the book term. ending. Yeah, it was like a narrative device of sorts saying that like, oh the the story that you are watching now is this legend From that, my from my youth. From my youth, yeah. And that is Beyond Thunderdome. We've given you the pitch of it. Now let's sink our teeth into it more fully. I have seen this before. I grew up with this movie. This was the one that was always playing on television because, of course, this is a PG-rated film. The violence and the nudity and the sex are almost completely stripped out of it. And if it is there, it is far more subtle and less in-your-face. It is less... Uh, like it's less uh atmospheric of a film and far more traditional mm-hmm. in its uh presentation. I was going to say storytelling, but that wouldn't be true either because it is still a little bit off the beaten path storytelling wise. Uh, so this was always on, and this was my frame of reference for what Mad Max was growing up. It was just like, oh, this is what Mad Max is. Oh, okay, and then you learn through you know, just osmosis and then eventually watching them for yourselves that, no, the other Mad Max movies are far more brutal, maybe even nihilistic, calm, quiet, uh, pensive, tension film. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yes. uh, 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 You know, the apocalyptic element of it is obviously present, but not as in your face as it is in this film. And then... So to say, I, I grew up with it, but I never really had that strong of an opinion on it. I knew that this was always labeled as the bad one. Oh, Mad Max ended on a bad film. It's it's very bad. It's terrible. It's not good. And then in recent years, I have watched all of these movies and I come to Mad Max 3 and I have a little bit of a fondness for it because it does have, just because there's so much dialogue in it in comparison to the first two. Yeah, there is. It has a lot of quotable and memorable things, like two men enter, one man leaves. There is no equivalent of that type of thing in the other two movies. Not really. Not in the same vein. You have more iconic visuals and and the designs of things. Yeah, and characters. But this has a lot more banter and humour, and so... 
although this has been looked down upon as Mad Max, in a weird way, there's a lot of the stuff that's in this movie, even some of those character designs, are what hold up in the Mad Max movie franchise. So I've always had a bit of a tug of war because also as a child, I hated the children in this movie. I did not want children in my Mad Max movie. I did not want them in this way. I hate everything about them. I've never liked them. And spoiler alert, I still don't like them. They ruin everything for me. Any piece of credit I could give this movie will be shot down by flaming arrows and spears because those kids exist. I don't like them. I don't like their gimmick. I don't like the way they talk. But even to go further a bit, there's been a lot more of a fondness for Mad Max 3 that's grown over the years. And heck, even with Fury Road coming out, it makes people come back and re-examine things. And there is some interesting narrative and thematic resonance in this film that we could examine, but I haven't really in the past been able to give it a fair shake in that regard. I've always mm -hmm. just kind of viewed it as a a film you put on. You know how sometimes you just, yeah. I'm just watching a movie. I'm not I'm not really going to dig into it too deeply, uh, especially one like this where it presents itself as a very uh, Hollywood action over the top. Here's a song by Tina Turner type film. You just you just let its, uh, I guess, 80s-ness wash over you in a way. But Bartek, tell us a bit about your relation to this film, your perception of it going into it and what it was like coming out. Yep. So, um, <clears throat> having only seen the original Mad Max and Fury Road for the longest time, uh, the middle two films were always something that I only knew little bits about. I think with the Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, it was mainly just the general idea of like, oh, that's that's a good one that a lot of people are you know, really fond of. It's the one that America knew for the longest time, not even knowing it was Mad Max 2. It was just The Road Warrior. Um, so it was, that one was like a basic idea of like, oh, that's just a really solid film. Whereas with uh, Beyond Thunderdome, I did hear more about its reputation. Um, and I also knew a little bit more about it because there were just individual things from it that I'd heard about through pop culture osmosis. Um, and even even the fact that like, oh, it's, it's the one where Mad Max uh, is with some kids. In the lead up to me watching the film... I remembered that fact, but then I discarded it because I thought like, oh, no, 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 wait, I heard that about Robocop 3, so <laughs> that's that's a different thing. That's not this film. Robocop 2 also has kids. Robocop, yeah. One kid. I've only seen the first Robocop as well, mm -hmm. so, yeah. Um, but yeah, I knew like, oh, there, there's like a Thunderdome. I didn't know what it looked like. I was imagining like, you know, an open desert coliseum. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't know what it looked like. Um, then you got a, then you got a dome, a literal dome, a literal dome. Yeah, um, I knew that the the we don't need another hero was from this film. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've known about that song for a very long time, but I only in recent years learned that like, oh, it was made for, or at least I think made for this film. It has lyrics about the yeah. film. Uh, just get beyond just for, the thunder. Yeah, just for a point of reference too. Uh, maybe you aren't as aware of this because I know you aren't as entrenched in music. But Tina Turner, although an American artist, did have a very strong connection in Australia, and her music was very successful here in Australia. Like, the, the, the Nutbush song is actually one that plays often 
for social occasions and dance numbers and stuff here in Australia. And it's not done ironically. It's like, hey, let's do the nutbush. And she often would play here. So her being in this movie that is still in part an Australian production, it's like, yeah, that kind of adds up. Yeah, so it was we filmed would... not far from Kubapedi, I think I read. And so we would hear Tina Turner songs and the ones like this and nutbush very often growing up I just I in the background. You I may not have even noticed. I couldn't tell you much of her discography, but I've probably heard a lot of her songs, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, new little things about it. I didn't know about the like structure change partway through. And in reading the trivia after the fact that goes into like the reason behind that, I absolutely didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were other little things. I was like, oh, the idea of uh, Master Blaster being like a little guy riding on a big guy. I feel like I've seen that in a couple of things. So. Probably video games. Probably video games, probably other sort of pop culture osmosis stuff. But um, and, and the name, too, I think I might have heard here and there. Um, but yeah, it was just little things like that. So I've been curious since we started the Mad Max ride to see like, oh, let's see how that one actually is. You know, I, I'm not, I'm walking in knowing that this one is the contentious one so I can, yeah, better prepare myself to, you know, look for the positives or see like if it is that bad. And what did you think of Beyond Thunderdome? Well, Ryan, uh, pretty similar to The Body. I really enjoyed the first part, (laughs) and I didn't hate the second part, but I was waiting for it to kind of go back to the first part. Oh, they go back to Barter Town? Yeah, they do go back to Barter Town, but uh, when the film ended, I'm like, oh, it didn't quite go back the way I wanted it to. (laughs) Interesting. So you did enjoy sections of the movie. Yeah, I really enjoyed the first section, and the second half didn't make me hate the film, but it did, you know, kind of bum me out a bit. Well, that's that's something to hear because I was wondering how you would react to this because you have had you know a pleasant journey with the Mad Max movies. You know they're not as they're not exactly as the, you would expect them to be from just word of mouth. Like when there's a tone hmm. in those first two Mad Max movies that is actually hard to uh, package to other people. You just have to be in it. You just have to watch it and live in it. The third film doesn't have that tone. It's it's very much uh, more whimsical, more humorous. There's an actual joke about Mad Max having to give over all of his weapons, and it's from an Oscar mm. did that joke. I, and I swear there was even a moment that had like some really whimsical music playing. Oh, yeah. There's many whimsical comedic beats and... Uh, if yeah, if we look at it in the first part, second part way of looking at this, the first one has the veneer of a Mad Max tale of him being an apathetic guy, caring only about something that involves him and him alone, walking into a much more complicated situation that would affect many different people, and he has to deal with it only because he cares about one thing. And that was similar in the second film, but it's presented very differently here. Like it's on a grander scale. It's a society is reforming. I said to you when we started this, I look at the Mad Max trilogy as 
The first one is about dying. The world is dying. Society is collapsing, but it's still there. Yeah, we've had plenty of like shots and scenes of like people just at a diner and like mm. hearing stuff happening outside. Music, music would play in that one. Remember how musical it was? There was yeah. like a song, and that came back in this film. And a lot that of actually came back. Yeah, and a lot of the like scenes with Max's family, they're they're in home. They're in like a picnic outside. They used to thing. be green. Yeah, remember the color green? Mm-hmm. You don't really see it in this film. It's still very much orange and brown and yellow and just the desert and then the second film is is just death it's like mad max is just he's a husk of a person everything is failing like all of the hero heroic characters die and they die miserably like they don't have these glorious heroic sacrifices they just are and then you know it works out in a way but mad max just wanders off into the abyss and he is just remembered more fondly than he actually was in reality to the point in which he also has barely any lines of dialogue and then i look at the third film and i think many people do as as a as a rebirth society is coming back it's growing mm. into something more familiar to us cuz even in the second film the post apocalyptic landscape was so barren and there was just these feral groups that were just doing things out of a primordial... Yeah, when you found places that people were at, it was like a base rather Mm. than a town. Even though the lead villain of the group in that second film was trying to present himself as eloquent and he says, give us the gasoline and everything of that nature, it was still very much uh, primal. And then here we get politics and societal collapse and and there's all of this interconnected and interpersonal thing at play much more amplified so and and max himself uh one of the reasons mel gibson did this movie and to close it out was he regains his humanity we see him open up again we see him become a father again Mm. after having lost his family and accepting death and now he is coming back into the fold so as a trilogy thematically speaking really strong I don't like this movie. I I really walked in wanting to like it, wanting to see the credit that it is given over the years. And one of the things that holds me back is I really do like those first two movies. And one of the things that really makes me attracted to them that this one just shits on immediately is they're quiet. This film is never quiet. The music is constant. <laughs> the sounds are constant. People, Max, never shut the fuck up. Like everyone, it's just all this noise, and it's not in service of something. It just feels like a Hollywood mandate. You can't make a Mad Max movie like you did last time because audiences need their attention constantly stimulated. We constantly need quips and gags and and max is an action hero in this one like unabashedly he's indiana jones Mm. there's that moment where the guy swings a sword or whatever he's got around and he just grabs out a gun and shoots the feathery thing off of his head it's just it's just indiana jones and i really adored how in those first two mad max movies and even fury road where it's way more overtly an action movie Max isn't really an action star he just kind of fumbles his way through things and tries his best and he he'll kill some people and he'll get some punches in, but like he's he not... takes some hard blows that have consequences for the rest of the films that they happen in. But he's not Rambo. Mm. He's he and you know and he's not he's closer to like uh, I guess 
He's a cipher. He just is in an action movie, but he doesn't meet all of those action movie things. Although aesthetically, you think that's why we talked so so heavily in those first two movies discussion of there's an image of what Mad Max is. And then it's not true. Like people when Fury Road came out were upset that Mad Max Fury Road wasn't about Mad Max. It's like, have you watched any Mad Max movie? They're <laughs> barely about him. It's always about the other people. It's always about the other conflicts going on and how he is just this little goblin that exists in there and he just wants food. Like I'll eat dog food and then I'll fuck off or I want gas. And yeah, I just I just could not jive with this movie. And yeah, it was just tonally, it was not for me. Music, the music I just found obnoxious. I just I just wanted it to shut up. And we open up, and I want to get your opinion on this at least. It literally opens up with Tina Turner, full 80s music opening <laughs> song. And I sat there going, Instantly, this isn't a Mad Max movie. <laughs> Instantly, I was like, this isn't a Mad Max movie. I, I was remembering, you know, The Road Warrior and how that began with, like, you know, the, the the footage of, like, oh, like, montage of what was happening in this time period and the the very eloquent voice, like, very mm-hmm. poetically describing, like, this is the type of story that you're going to get. And, yeah, this one was different. I did, I did kind of like that the opening credits just, like, you know, Bam, here it is right now. Black screen, white text, mm-hmm. here's all the information. I was like, oh, okay, straight to the point. That's good. I'm getting to see, you know, the title of the film right away and, you know, who's in it. Um, the music certainly contrasted with the Road Warriors opening, though. <laughs> and Mad Max itself, too, like the first Mad Max. I uh, Yeah. It's weird because a lot of the things you're saying about how, you know, this isn't a Mad Max film, it almost feels like it wants to complement your idea of rebirth. Yes, Where it's like I, the, I agree. these are the kind of things that you would expect in a rebirth. Yeah, I, 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 I can understand that, but I do wish that it, it was more familiar and then blossomed into this other thing. But yeah. this is a. The, I, I want to get your thoughts on this. This is the most. As soon as you start it, the most obvious that this was made in a specific time period, like the film itself was made in the eighties, mm-hmm. and it's a Hollywood movie. Like, that's how I couldn't get past that. It's like, this is a Hollywood production. Like, this is a big production. I'm not just talking about the sets, but just, like, the t- like the feel of it. It's like, the, the, the first two movies, it's like, oh, there's, there's kind of like a rough-and-tumble independent filmmaker. Let's strap a camera to a car and just drive as fast as oh, we the can. The first film's super much so, yeah. <laughs> what about the second film, where second the guy film hits too. his foot on the thing, does a pinwheel, and then breaks every fucking bone in his leg, and they just left it in because it's like, it's good enough? There's nothing like that in this. Like, I'm not even just talking about the stunts. It's just something to me... When I when I tune into Mad Max Three, it is oh this is the high like this is the blockbuster '80s version of a Mad Max movie. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I I can definitely see, uh, especially with the second half, how you how you would say that this is yeah the kind of Hollywood thing going on, um, because it it does very much feel like a. As you said, this is this is closing out a trilogy with a thematic point, and the the writing is leading us to that point. Um, and so, seeing the execution of that with it becoming a bit more whimsical, going for the you know he's becoming a father to these people kind of vibe, uh, the presence of the kids, yeah, it does very much feel like there was a uh, don't know corporate mandating is the word, but uh, you know 
boxes that you had to tick to hit that point and plot beats to hit. Um, I still do think, because I did enjoy that first half, that you know it, it still very much feels like Mad Max throughout that mm. section. Uh, I'm just thinking, you know, all the the character designs, costume designs, um, that it does lean into brutality a little bit more, okay. especially when we do get into the Thunderdome and yeah. you know someone gets stabbed during the fight that it wasn't in the Thunderdome. Yeah, that was a good um, moment. Yeah, uh, when the hammer impacting on Blaster mm-hmm. moments yeah. like that, like I they oh, kill Blaster, they, they shoot they him do, with arrows. They yeah. do. It was it was a bit. Yeah, there's just arrows through him. But, there was some yeah. blood there. It was, it was. They had the. It is no. It is something note that this is the PG Mad Max. Like, yeah. This is the one with less violence, no real swearing, no nudity. Like when I think of all the- of the brutality of those second of the first two films, including like again, you could argue that it's you don't need it, but those first two films had sexual violence in them. That's mm. just a part of and the third and even Fury Road implies it like that's an inherent this part one, of the story. This one definitely didn't have the brutality element which I really did enjoy from the first two. Like I'm thinking of the first one there was that guy that I forget the full details of what happened but he like leaves that one guy to die with like mm-hmm. a lighter or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that was Matt, Max, yeah, he leaves that one guy to die because yeah, yeah he was one of the people responsible and I remember, for killing his family. Yeah, and again, don't remember all the details but in the second one when he gets the injury when the car like Mm-hmm. flips over and he's like left for dead i just remember that scene as well like the vibe of it at least i don't think this film has an equivalent to those two for me <laughs> not at all now to give some praise because there are things i do like about this and this is a also a criticism but it's one that exists in every mad max movie and it's not really a major criticism it's just a statement that i think many people feel would love her. Would love to have seen the villain more. I love Tina Turner as the auntie. As auntie, she's so good. Although I don't really care for her music being a part of the soundtrack. I love her presence. I love her performance. She adds such a, a, a flair to the role. She's a very striking-looking woman, and her voice is just iconic in its own way. And when we did Tommy on this podcast the film yes. Tommy, yep. she was in that as the acid queen and she gave a, a, a truly electrifying and crazy and bizarre performance in that, which is all her singing, of course, but like she has the big quivering lips and her legs are constantly shaking and I like her as a screen presence, so her in this movie bantering with Mel Gibson although she wasn't a, a, like an A-grade like actor, she wasn't as you know, on the same caliber as like Mel was, I thought she stood toe to toe with him so easily. I I love in her terms, in this. yeah, in terms of like the villains in the Mad Max movie. It's interesting that I'm watching this one for because this one stands out among the bunch. Where it's a, it's a, it's a woman playing it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a lot less like physically brutal on their own. Um, they survive in the end. Like she these... lets him live. Yeah. <laughs> And they have uh, a, a more uh, more of a rapport because they work together. Yeah, to they actually with. have face to face scenes that end with "Okay, go do your thing." What I really like about Auntie is she gives something that we haven't seen in a Mad Max movie before, which is she isn't a crazy villain. Like she isn't insane, like Toe Cutter was, for instance, where he was like, "I love being violent and crazy." She had a goal. She used Max 
and then he fucked her over, so she fucked him back. And it's like she had a plan to the point in which she was almost like a femme fatale in a noir story. And I mm. think that is something you wouldn't typically associate with this universe of like, let's throw Mad Max into a film noir type tale where he gets himself embroiled in something big. But at the same time, isn't isn't that on par as well? Like, it also makes sense. It's like something that I, I believe marries well together with the universe and with this character. And I just thought she was just, she, she was electrifying. I really missed her. I think the second half is greatly weaker because we don't have someone like her or the master or, you know, even um, uh, uh, Angry Anderson's character who, what was his name again? Like, Iron something? Iron Bar. We don't yeah. have them to be counterpoints to Max. Going, going by the language that we've used in the episode so far, she is synonymous with part one where, you know, mm. she's in part one and then you kind of go a little bit back to it as the film goes on, but not to the same satisfying degree. What did you feel about her uh, presence in the film? Not just the the performer, the actress, but also the the character themselves. Because this is a unique thing. In all four movies, we haven't seen Max just sit down and work out a plan with the villain and just be like, let's 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 team together for things. It's it's cool. Yeah, it was. It was interesting. It was interesting that we could actually get a bit of exposition about the world from our villain talking to Max, because yeah, Toe Cutter in the first one, he was an antagonist that Max confronted in the end and who, you know, basically set him off on the quote unquote journey that he went on. Uh Lord Humongous was this really dissonant figure where his tone of voice, you know... He was eloquent. Yeah, clashed with, like, what he looked like. <laughs> and what he did. And what he did and who he associates with. And it's, yeah, just this really bizarre, memorable thing. Um, and even you can say similar things about, uh, what was his name, Immortan Joe? Immortan Joe, on. yeah, because he was like a cult leader figure. He was Mr. I'm being charitable because I'm giving you the water. And also... I, I take everything from you. Fuck you. Yeah. I, I'm also a rapist, so yeah. fuck you. All of them very powerful in a, you know, a tyrannistic, manly way. Um, and then here we have, you know, leader of this town in the, as you say, the world of rebirth, where, you know, there are, there's a sense of order, even if it's said, like, you know, there is no rules around here. In she the was Thunderdome. no one before, but after mm -hmm. she became this, she became someone. Like, mm -hmm. she profited she off that, like, of yeah. the apocalypse. But this is something interesting, too. The other three are powerful men. Mm -hmm. She's a power. Well, she's presented at first as a powerful woman, but we see she's being oppressed by a powerful man or powerful men. These two guys mm. are the ones, although they live in the shit, <laughs> they get like knee deep in the shit. They're the ones really pulling the strings. Yeah, because the shit is power. <laughs> yeah, the shit is power. It's, it is power. <laughs> and uh, I think this is unique too. And, and I, I want to know your opinion on this. She's the only sympathetic villain. Like I feel for her. Like I, when he, when Master makes her say that he runs Barter Town, like this is his town. Over the PA. Yeah. Over the PA. And, and you know, Tina Turner's face, you know, just contorts with pain during that. I look at them and go, oh, I understand everything you do. I get it. 
the other villains, I get it on a like a cathartic, ooh, isn't it great to be evil way, but she's the only one where it's like, yeah, it's oh, like, oh, Max, your partner is, you know, being uh, belittled right here. You got degraded, yeah, yeah, degraded. For you have to fulfill your end of the bargain and like help her out because she's going to help you out. And obviously he fucks her around, and so she fucks him around. But well, yeah, he sees uh, Blaster's face. Yes, and he has a change of heart. But she made the law. She knows the law. But it's I, the Thunderdome. There are no rules. Well, there's one rule. <laughs> Two <laughs> men enter, one man leaves. There's a few rules, it seems. But There's a few ways to do it, but there are more guidelines. Two men, two, men, two men enter, one man leave. Well, two men did enter, and one of them's currently dead, so technically the one man can leave. Well, well no, no, because Master was there. <laughs> well, then three men entered. Well, well I think... Um, Four, was, if you count the announcer. Well, they, well, they did shoot... Uh, blaster to death with the arrows. So it's like, well, two men, and then that's why she's like, two men enter, one man leave. Sorry, and then and then she brings in a new rule of the wheel. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just that 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 character and what she offers up to this film in relation to the other two films and even Fury Road makes her memorable. It's not only because she's the villain that gets the mo- like a lot of lines of dialogue, but she she has a specific uh set of goals that are not just uh just be evil for sake of evil. And uh, what about this? There's no evidence in the movie from my eyes that her being in charge of Barter Town is bad. <laughs> Like, she just treats the master like shit because he was evil to her. It's like, does she run the town with an iron tyranny, like with a boot on their throat? Like, does she? We don't see that. No, I don't think it's ever really established, even at the beginning. It just it just because it's a Mad Max story, you kind of get the impression like, oh, maybe there's something dark going on. But no, we, when we actually do get to look inside the town, there's bartering going on. <laughs> and at the end, she sees Max and lets him go and she's happy and he's happy and she rides off and I as as someone who's looking at this saying oh she's going to go back to Barter Town or she's going to do whatever she's going to do and I don't feel any sadness or ill will or, or distrust of that I'm like oh she has the ability of compassion the master did not he was going to kill Max and then everyone trapped him into hey 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 you got to do the dome. You got to do the dome. Like he was going to kill him. He doesn't play fair. Like he he doesn't have the compassion. He doesn't. But she does in her way, which no other. Like you know that's that's something. I just. I wish the movie was about that stuff, man. Like mm. way more about that stuff. Were you surprised how quickly the Thunderdome came in? Because that always takes me off guard of like, oh, we're, we're doing the Thunderdome already. Well, well, this is the thing. I wasn't surprised by how quickly it came in because I, again, I didn't know about the two-act kind of structure of the film. My interpretation of it was, okay, here's the introduction of the Thunderdome. We're going to come back to it. Um, and yeah, but but then when the, when the fight was organized, I'm like, okay, okay, this is, you know, this is the first fight of in the Thunderdome. The climax of the film is going to be a return to it. Maybe him and Auntie will fight in the Thunderdome. I didn't necessarily think that, but I did think, you know, the film's called Beyond Thunderdome. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that when we entered the second half, we were literally beyond the point where the Thunderdome <laughs> is relevant. They didn't even lead up to the Thunderdome beforehand. It's like, oh, well, now Thunderdome. It's like, there's no hints of it. So it's like, the title Beyond Thunderdome is a great title, 
but it puts so much pressure on the Thunderdome part of it. Like, if it was not called that, if it was just called Mad Max 3, you wouldn't care too much about the Thunderdome's relevance in the story, but it's called Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Or as Bartek called it in our description last week, Max Mad. Did I say what? Did I? You wrote Max Mad Beyond Thunderdome, which which is funnily enough what Siskel accidentally called it in his review. Max Mad. Max Mad. Max Mad. You know, technically I didn't mix up two words. I just mixed up two letters. You you said, you you know what you did? You Mm. spoke like the people in this movie do where it's like, and I'm not even talking about the kids. I'm talking about like the master speaks like that. Max Mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Me Max. That's the only time Max is said. By the way, is that one time is when Max says "me Max"? That's it, so that we know who Max is. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I think that ties Credence into just how he is implemented as a character in these films. He is not meant to be important. He is just a symbol. He is just some someone that literally children could project onto like oh you're captain walker or in the second film you're this legendary road warrior and, and well really he's just a guy you're sprog's dad yeah you're sprog's dad but i i you know when we get to that first part what did you think of just seeing a society again just barter town like we spend a bit of time in barter town and how it works and how everything functions and the highs and lows and like this person does this thing and this person does that thing like look here's water it's irradiated but hey come on don't you want some water or you have a whole set piece of max getting to an audition Mm. i guess um i guess being somewhat familiar with the settings that we've had in the previous mad max film I was expecting there to be a bit more of like a dark twist behind everything because, yeah, when you first get there, you know, it's a really dark room. People are getting in line, talking to this one guy and making a deal whether they can come in or not. Um, and then as Max is walking through Barter Town to get, you know, to the little lift thing, um, there are people like giving him looks and, you know, there's a guy selling his camels. Mm-hmm. And I, I did think like, okay, there's going to be a bit more darkness with this element here. But in the end, it didn't really end up being that way. So... It was only later on that I realized, like, yeah, that actually is just, you know, a a town with order in it, relatively. There's just one little freak who gives uh, shit to one woman and it makes the town suffer. Well, no, he's not giving shit to the woman. Well, yes, of course. (laughs) It's the literal uh, problem. That's that's still an issue with the first part that, you know, whether it is quote-unquote a Mad Max movie or not, it's lacking that oppressive quality. The whole film lacks that. And I don't need it to be as overbearing as the second film. Look at Fury Road. It doesn't have as overbearing of an oppression on the characters, but it's still there. There's still a sense of what we are fighting against is this never-ending void. But here, when he shuts off the power... We only see it through the prism of Auntie and how it's like, oh, here he goes again. Don't do this. I, I, I really wanted to see more of Max 
living in Barter Town, like in the second film, yeah. where he lives in that camp and he gets to observe people and their and how they work. You get to see him living with the wrong people. <laughs> and I would have liked to have seen more of him as a guy working under Master Blaster and befriending or getting to know or having something more with the pig killer character who I constantly kept forgetting about was in this movie until they kept cutting back to oh, him. Dude, I'm like, oh, were, it's that guy. There were points throughout the film where I just didn't even know what characters were there and it was like, oh, is this a friend? Is this a foe? Is that the guy? Was that the, the pig killer guy? Is that someone else? He had a monkey. Yeah. I, I just... And then we get to uh, uh, thun- oh, Master Blast is great, by the way. That's 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 pure Mad Max. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that's like insane Mad Max bullshit. And the guy who plays the Master is great. You know, he was uh, last film role apparently. He was in Freaks, which is one of those great movies of the golden age or early time of cinema. I've seen it; it's very good. And uh, yeah, he was a little person actor. He was in a bunch of things and. What a film role to end the career on, because even though the film itself has a rocky quality, I, for people, uh, I think most that watch Beyond Thunderdome like Master Blaster. It's like Master Blaster is like an iconic design, an iconic idea, like just, it feels familiar, yet Mm. it still is unique. To this, it's, I just like it so much. It is much. very familiar. It, it's you're literally blending like, oh, the little guy and the big guy mm-hmm. as a tag team duo and of sorts. Well, not really, but as a duo. But uh, yeah, as people play video games, this feels like such a video gamey thing. I was, where it's like, I was actually you know, you get the big muscly guy. And I was literally thinking, one. like, I, I haven't played it, but in the very first Castlevania game, there's like a boss where it's like Frankenstein's monster and a little jumping flea man. Mm-hmm. So, I love Master Blaster. He was very funny. Um, uh, master, master was, but I also liked how the blaster physical performance was done. It was very lumbering and yet expressive. In just you could tell when he was sad, just mm. because of how he would hold his <laughs> arms and stuff. I just, I really got a kick out of. I was having a little kick out of imagining what blaster would have been like, you know, before mm-hmm. the whole apocalypse. <laughs> There's fan theories that he was the... The farmhand The farmhand in the first. I hate those type of fan theories. Look, it's just... Because there were people like, oh, that's why Max spared him. It's like, no! This is the same film where Bruce Spence does not play the gyrocopter guy. He's also just another pilot, like, flying guy. <laughs> it's like, you just have to accept, like, they're similar, even characters and actors and same actors, and it's just... Yeah, the first film had uh, you know someone like that, but it's it's not the same. It's it's like Max spares him because it's like he still has a moral line that he does not cross, mm. which is specific for Max because we've seen him just be so apathetic before. So him not killing children or people who are childlike makes sense because that's what's ruined his life. Yeah. Uh, the beyond the Thunderdome fight itself. Uh, what do you think of it? Were you a fan? I I enjoyed it. I I was a little confused at first why they were being like tied up to harnesses. Well, you got to utilize the dome. Yeah, I guess it's like Spider Man in the wrestling match with uh, what was a buzzsaw, bones, bones, or where he could <laughs> jump up and around, and bones was like, "Get down here!" That's I'm like, a cage, yeah. <laughs> I I was 
flip-flopping on it during it because I thought it was too goofy. I'm like, this They'll, is so yeah. goofy. I, I, I had that same thought when they finally cut the harnesses and they're on the floor. I kind of appreciated that a little uh, bit more. The bit I liked actually was when uh, Blaster launched Max right near a spike that was welded into mm. the dome. Like, oh, okay, now they, that's yeah, fun. They did use the harnesses to good effect, I'll admit, but yeah. When Max just kept like jumping over Blaster constantly mm. and the crowd was like getting annoyed. Yeah. I also like the concept of like the weapons being tied to like the upper parts of it. Like, mm. you know, going back to what I was saying before, but I thought it was just going to be like a Colosseum of some sort. You know, the fact that it was a dome that used like the whole 180 degree semisphere. Um, yeah, it had, a, it had a concept that it did fulfill relatively well, but also. Again, going back to something else I was saying was, oh, well, let's see how it progresses in the second time we see it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One of the things that is very interesting to note about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and when we're talking about it in these two parts, is the lack of car stuff. Like, it does have it in the end, but... For the majority of the film, there's very little even references to cars. It's mm. just lacking that. So, strangely enough, the Master Blaster sequence is probably the most exhilarating action set piece to me. Uh, I found it more engaging. It, it Maybe because in the framework of this movie franchise, it was unique. It was, it was different. It wasn't just people on cars and their cars explode when another one drives into them real fast. And the car action in this particular one was not uh, was not dangerous to me. The other two films, you you know that they're driving that fast and that they're doing it on a road somewhere in Australia and just hoping for the best. And here's a guy that got horrifically injured making it, but hey, wasn't it a good stunt anyway? And and. So when I look at the Master Blaster sequence and it's like Max is running around, he's trying to constantly grab that whistle, but then an, and then like a hammer nearly hits him in the head and it's like it's a physical prop going right next to Mel Gibson's head. I'm on the edge of my seat in some way more than what feels like a carnival ride uh, car chase sequence near the end of the movie where they've got a plane and there's mm. this and they're shooting harpoons and... It's so, just to me, it's just so weird to look at a Mad Max movie and think so little about the car aspect of this series, which is synonymous with Mad yes. Max. Yes. No, the, the other films just did it better. Like, when it was happening in this one, I was just like, okay, it's happening. But also, when are we getting back to Barter Town? <laughs> and I didn't miss the car stuff. I, like, I don't need Mad Max to have car stuff in it. I was actually only thinking about that now once we were talking about like action stuff because like what is Mad Max action? Oh, it's car action a lot. Mm. And that's what it's been very strong at yeah, in the past. Cra crazy little sort of vehicle modified designs. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it would continue to be that way after this movie. <laughs> Ten <laughs> times it's really elaborate uh, car, car it designs. It took them a few decades, but it did continue. George Miller needed to power down after Happy Feet. <laughs> Well, no, he needed to make Happy Feet too. He needed to make, but after the Happy Feet movies, he needed to just rest a bit and then get, oh, it's car time, vroom, vroom. Well, he also had to make Babe. I guess the pigs in this film were. Mm, babe, Babe. The two Babes, two yes. Was when he directed. Is I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think the, because this is co-directed. This isn't just George Miller on oh, his yeah, own. Oh, yeah, it is. I think the co-director. Some other George, right? 
yeah, I think the co-director of this is the one who directed Babe. I'm pretty sure because if we remember in Babe in our discussion, we talked about the director of that film was like a mentor, a mentee, protege of George Miller. Like they worked together. George Ogilvy. Yes, and he felt that George Miller was actually too involved in Babe to the point of interfering with his direction. And there's even comments on this movie of debate of how much was George Miller involved in directing stuff and how much was he not. And he has dismissed the claims that he was not involved as much. He said, look, the one sequence I wasn't there for was the opening with the camels. I wasn't there for that. But the rest of it, we were together arm in arm during it. But it is also just very, you know, big to say, like, there is another creative voice behind this. There is someone else. It isn't just George Miller directs, George Miller writes. Uh, The director of the first Babe was Chris Noonan. Ah, that's it. Different guy. But... Um, yeah, it's it's in, it's interesting. And then Barter Town disappears because I spin a wheel and I, I can't... I can try and justify so many things wrong with this movie, but this one, I don't know why, it trips me up every single time and maybe there's a nuance I'm not giving it credit for, but they spin the wheel and it goes to Gulag. Mm. And you're like, oh, I know what a Gulag is. That's like a work camp. I, I didn't... F- fully remember what it was, but I remembered it was something like that. Like, oh, you're going to get sent to the gulag. Yeah, the Russian gulag. It's a work camp. It's like you work there till... It's what he was doing just a moment ago, but undercover. It's like, oh, he's going to be sent to that again or somewhere else as like a slave. It's what the pig killer is stuck in. Yes, he's in a gulag. But then they tie him to a horse, put a thing on his head, and then slap the horse and just ride off into the desert and let him die. It's like, that's not what a gulag is. Yeah, that's like exile. That's literally on the wheel, exile. And it's like, oh, wow. So I didn't notice that. that. Uh, I can't... I don't know if there's a missing piece here or if I'm not giving the film credit of subtlety of she says she's upholding the law, but when actually doing it, she's underhanded because she wants to kill Max or wants to send him off. But what I if- think it's presented to... I, I don't know if you would um, agree with this or not, but there's just too much of like a ritualism to how they are doing this to Max that it comes across like this is what Gulag is on the wheel rather than she's actually doing another thing than what the wheel said. Like it was all for show for the people. What if, what if it's what if it's a case of um, they only had enough like tape for one uh, shot and they're like, oh, whatever it lands on, just... Just go with it. I wish. <laughs> but then the... Oh, we didn't land on X, I landed on Gulag. But the guy All right, everyone chant Gulag. Dr. Feelgood will say, Gulag, Gulag, and everyone cheers, Gulag, Gulag. Oh, if you're a big fan of characters yelling a word out loud over oh, and over you'll, again. You'll love this film. And repeating words that other characters say, but louder, you'll love yeah. this. It, Two you, men enter, it, one man leave. Yeah, you, you can have adults doing it and children doing it. They were lacking a dog doing it in this one. There was no dog in the movie. The monkey should have done it. The monkey could have done it. That's close to human. And then he gets slapped. Controversial. And he go, the horse gets slapped and it dies before he does, which is interesting. But it gets slapped. It runs into the desert, falls into a sand trap. Like It dies first and then the sand trap gets it. It just sinks into it. And then he's found by a flock of children. And the best way to describe it is this is when the film says, do you have 
strong tolerance? Can I? <laughs> Are you strong physically? Because you're going to be super fucking strong right now can, can to I... <laughs> obey what we are going to do for the next 40 minutes. Before we talk about what happens for the next 40 minutes, um, I know I brought up Roger Ebert in the last episode we did, but mm. I, I read his review for this one again. They loved this movie. Well, this is the bizarre thing about it, because I read the trivia point about like Roger Ebert gave it four four out of four stars and said that this was his favourite of the trilogy. And I was like, oh, okay, interesting. I watched the video, like the film review, and he said he was going to put in his top films of that year. I didn't watch the video, but I watched, I mean, I read the archive of his written review and it was really weird because, and I, you can tell me if the video review comes across the same way, but like, you know, it's got multiple paragraphs until the very last paragraph, he's only talking about the first half of the film mm-hmm. and how great Barter Town is, how great the Thunderdome is, and like how, you know, the Thunderdome is like the greatest development in martial arts since the beginning mm-hmm. of karate films. Yeah. And then in the last paragraph, he lists the film also has and it like lists a bunch of stuff from later on in the film and he doesn't go into it at all. I think that's fair because it's it's a, it's supposed to be a surprise. We know that it has this structure, but, like, at the time, it is a a rug pull. You're doing a usual Mad Max story. Hey, look, it's Mad Max, and he's doing this, and this, 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 this. Oh, suddenly now, it is this other thing. It's It's this mythological, fairy tale, folksy, hippy dippy look at this, uh, like generation of children who have grown up not knowing the world and Max's and that ties into what the behind the scenes of this film was which was it was originally supposed to be a Lord of the Flies like tale and then someone said yeah, Lord of the Flies can the adult be mad Max like an adult finds kids yeah Lord of the Flies and the post-apocalypse and a man finds them and they're like hey what if it's Max let's and, make and Mad George Max. Miller said sure and it feels well, think, that way. I think the trivia said that George Miller said, what if it's Max? Oh, what if it's Max? I don't know if I it read, was I read not, someone but... said, what if it's Max? And then George I Miller got wrong, involved. Yeah. But it just comes out of nowhere. And sometimes that can be very good. And the argument in its favor, because the presentation is annoying. That's It's annoying. It's very just grating. The way these children speak, how they look, how they act... I hate it. But on the thematic level, they do offer up some great wealth of material for the film itself, but also, more importantly, the grander story of Max throughout these three films. Doesn't mean I like it, though. There's <laughs> there's a difference between, oh, thematically rich, but content-wise, garbage. I I I want to try and be nice because it's like, let's not pick on the children. It's not their fault. I know it's not their fault. But boy, oh boy, I don't need this. It's just, I'm not strong enough. <laughs> I I cringe. I roll my eyes. I, I yell at them. I just, I just, Walker, Captain Walker. And the way they mispronounce things. And I get the concept. Like, it makes sense. It's not even silly, but it's just, I just... <sighs> It's one of those rug pulls where I, I just don't welcome it. I'm sorry, but <laughs> as someone who's going through this for the first time, you even knew that there were kids involved, and you said, oh, you kind of dismissed well, it. Well, I, I thought it was in RoboCop. <laughs> but but you dismissed it because you thought it was in RoboCop, and, uh, you know, obviously you weren't as big of a fan of the second half, but when it did unveil itself, 
walk me through what it was like for you and uh, your thought process and feelings. I, I didn't cringe at all. Um, I, I did see potential in it, but you know, as it kept going and it wasn't getting away from it, I was still just hanging on to that. Like, okay, well, we'll be over this soon, and we we'll back to you know part of town and all that. And it just kept going on and on and on. Um, and similar to what you were saying about giving it credit because on a thematic level it works, as a concept I think it works too, that like something like this does exist in this universe because, yeah, uh, if – I think I read in trivia that like, oh, this is 20 years after the first Mad Max, so like, you know, within the last couple of decades this type of world has been the status quo. Mm. There would be people born after the beginning of that – um, which this is the only world they've known, and maybe they'll only hear about things from the past uh, just through hearsay or through, you know, uh, materials left behind. Like, all of the other Mad Max characters that we think of that aren't children, you know, they're all adults who would remember, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the world before or similar to, like, the millennial generation where we remember, you know, uh, the end of the 20th century while we were at a certain young age moving into the 21st, um, there would be a certain level of, you know, the past still in the younger people, but in the absolute youngest people here, mm-hmm. they only have this world. They don't have the education, so they speak in a, a broken, way. F- broken, funny way, um, and they don't fully understand everything, and maybe this is a sign of what's to come, uh, for the next generations coming forward. So it is an interesting idea. A, and there are concepts. Dilu- it's, it's like diluting what history was, but we even see that with the adults because to cope or to survive in this world, they've made a new frame of reference for how they got here. Even with Auntie and Max, the way they talk about their lives before this all collapsed is drastically different. Like he was. I was just a cop, a guy who drove a car, and she's like, oh, so you were one of the high-up people. Ah, so you got to fall down to this. How does it feel, raggedy man? Like, even that there, that disparity of how they view things beforehand, would, even if the kids were, like, around adults, because these kids are on their own, the adults have died, um, they would still have a skewed way of looking at the past, because the adults have a skewed way of looking at the past, even though they may factually know, like, World War whatever happened and the oil ran out. A lot of these adults don't really think, like, talk about it in that way. They just kind of talk about, like, how Max and uh, Auntie does, where it's just, there's just this classism thing going on. It's it's interesting. Yeah, and then there were, were little visual things that I found kind of interesting, like they're... When they were showing Max that they did have, you know, everything together or whatever the line was, and they were talking about the story, they had, like, that uh, prop with, like, the Mm -hmm. square frame that they were using. It's like, okay, it's kind of emulating, like, photographs, televisions. Yes, I was thinking that, too. Yeah, there were some interesting things there, but I think while it... It didn't really annoy me. I think maybe when Max first woke up and they were, you know, overstimulating him with, like, screaming at him and repeating his words, that part, I was like, okay, get beyond this. Um, (laughs) Beyond Thunderdome. (laughs) Beyond. No, go back to Thunderdome. Um, Beyond it. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't know that at the time. (laughs) 
You should have. I thought the credits would be what's beyond Thunderdome. Did you know the man who composed the music for this film set in the desert did Lawrence of Arabia, a film set in the desert? (laughs) So there you go. go. Um, But uh, one thing that I would say, though, that bothered me about their language was that because it was so broken and they were speaking it so... Casually? Casually and with purpose... I kind of wasn't getting what they were saying for a lot of it. Nor was Max. Nor was Max. Yeah, I was on Max's side, but I think the film wanted me to put the pieces a bit more closer together. Like they kept talking about the captain character mm-hmm. and the plane and like all these things about... See, I like yeah. that. I like that aspect. My problem is I have it on, a, I guess, a slightly different angle, which is I look at it as too much of the film being so proud of how mm. they've figured out like this little culture and the way they speak and the way they dispense information. Like every time they mispronounce a word, I can just imagine George Miller just patting himself <laughs> on the back going, clever George, clever George. <laughs> like I guess there's just something about it that's so smugly done to me because the story that I think when you say, like remove how they use the language, but when you go over on a script level of how it is slowly doled out, why these kids have landed here, how they've misinterpreted this captain character and his wa- and his wife and and how they've made this new culture because of these certain ideals. And then later on, you even get to hear the record that he had and it was just French lessons and and the kids even then are trying to imbue meaning on it. I will, I will say, when they had that French lesson thing and like the kids perfectly repeated the French, I was like, come on. Yeah, I know, that was absurd. They wouldn't do it perfect I, on the first okay. go. There was some where it's like, okay, they're saying bonjour, okay, sure, sure, sure. But when it was the last one where it's like, La- I want yeah, to return home, two. I'm like... That's too. I I would struggle to do it right now. Like yeah, if you I played would, it for I, me right now, and I, I would have rewound it. I would have <laughs> fucked it up. Yeah, they, but they just probably like no, no, that's too rehearsed. And with an accent, yeah, they do the accent. <laughs> Fuck <right>. off. <laughs> Fuck you. And there's also that thing too where you can't help but wonder, like, how much time has passed since the the end of the world, or like the, since the turn of the apocalypse? Because I can see this being a case if it was like two or three generations down. And that was in Mad Max 2, where you had the feral kid. It's like, dude, the apocalypse was like five years ago. We already have feral kid. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, there's always been a bit of uh, squidginess when it comes to that, where it's like, you you should have made the, the end of the society longer ago. Because it's like, could you imagine if society ended five years ago and, like, a kid we knew that was, like, you know, four years old was acting like a caveman. Like, it would be weird. It's like, look, I I get that things are rough right now, but, like, you know, like, we still have knowledge of how yeah. to raise children. It's like, I guess, I guess with, like, the boomerang kid in the second film, I kind of took that as, like, the apocalypse happened, like, Right before he would have started like school or something like that. Yeah, so, but still oh like, no, but kids are kids can talk before. And, school, but there's adults. So. He's around adults. Nah, f- fuck it. I'm not defending that. No, no. no but you're he's right. Good, but he, but he was a fun character. <laughs> he was. No, I'm not saying that he was bad. So, I'm no, just. But what I'm saying is, logic, he was yeah. fun enough where you can get over that hump of logic because that's the thing. Cinema sins. You could do this up the wazoo. Ding, ding, ding. But the thing is, you go beyond those cinema sins bullshit to what actually is good about a film for you as a viewer. And if a character is entertaining or functional enough, 
those logical leaps you can make. These children, I couldn't tell you who one of them was. There's like the older girl who narrates everything, but like I couldn't tell you her name. I couldn't really even tell you what her gimmick is. Like that's the thing. None of the kids had a unique or memorable gimmick, whether it is the way they fight or their personality quirk. It's like, oh, I guess there's the main girl who gave us exposition. There's that one kid with the certain type of face paint that will be very much used again in for the war boys. Yeah. And you have the really little kid. And Max is like, he carries his own stuff. And then Max carries him during the desert. But it's like, I can't tell you there, there was, anything about these kids. There was, an, uh, there was like a young adultish guy too, I guess. But yeah, I didn't know his name either. <laughs> uh, yeah, and... and uh, yeah, yeah just... as as individual characters, they were not for me. <laughs> you are stronger than I am because I just <laughs> could not help but grit my teeth and like my fingers were like digging into the couch when we were living in their land. There was this I okay, and I want to know from our listening people. Please email us at spitandpolished at gmail dot com or message us on our social medias. All of this is in the description. Or just come to Melbourne and shout to us really loud. We'll hear you. Uh. This annoyed me so much, and it's so specific. <laughs> Brian was pointing at the ceiling when because he said I'm that. Doing, going to do a hand gesture. Yeah, one of these kids is on like a a, um, a flying fox, and he goes down like he's on like you know he's he, he's mm. gliding down and is showing off this big set yeah, like a zip line of some sort. a zip line, and he's going down, and Max has just dropped into the water, and all the kids are running around chanting. Yeah, and yeah. it annoyed me because I'm like, am I watching Hook? Like, am I watching a Steven Spielberg kids movie where you have that type of thing? Or am I watching a fucking Mad Max movie? And that's the thing. I could accept this premise if this was the movie. But this is not the movie. This is near the end of the, like, halfway through to near the end of the movie. You're now asking me to invest in this wildly different premise that conceptually could be interesting. Mm. But... You already gave me like 50 to maybe an hour's worth of time on something that was already interesting and you threw it away to do this stuff. So this stuff that's drastically different to that, you know, it it brings out an aggression in me as a viewer. So a kid simply gliding down should not make me angry or should not upset me. But it did. And I want to know if that's something for, for people who watch this movie. I want to hear from my listeners if that's something that happens with movies or, or this specific film of just, there's just, you either needed it to entirely be Max finds these kids and then hijinks ensues from there, or can you, or does this work? I don't know, because a film I thought about very much so with this, that struggled with this as well, but I like that movie more, is Enemy Mine. Mm-hmm. Enemy Mine, premise... Two people who hate each other, one's an alien, one's a human, crash lands on a planet, must learn to live together and understand each other's culture. Shock, spoiler alert, midway through the film, a kid gets involved. Like, a kid replaces one of the characters, and then it becomes a movie about, like, parenthood, and and then that, and then it becomes a movie, an action movie. And it's like, that film, it, it, it did not transition between those things smoothly, but at the same time... I felt more real to what it was mm. than in this movie where it does that same thing where yeah. it's like Max had a cool character. We were bantering with them in Barter Town 
And then he rep- then he sold like then 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 the film sold that away for kids. Yeah, it's like and thankfully in Enemy Mine, like the the bad part of the movie was a much smaller fraction than this one. Where we keep saying first half, second half, I actually think what we're calling the second half is more of more most of the film. Do you think? I wonder if I if I grabbed a copy and went through it. When does we the cutoff point check, happen? I guess yeah. Because also I can't help but think about the final action set piece being so much entwined with the first half because it does bring the the uh does bring aviator characters that we saw in the opening who stole his vehicle of camels it does bring tina turner back it does bring iron bar back and instead now there's just children running around too like that's the you know, thing it's like it feels like it does feel like that final action set piece is what would you you, you would you would have had be the end point of if we kept in Bartertown, but now there's just these kid characters there too. Yeah, there was one kid in the film that did give me a decent-ish impression, and it was the Jedediah Jr. Yes. Because at the very beginning of the film, like one of the first things you see is he and his dad in the plane, and the dad is like telling the kid to fly, and the kid's like saying things like confidently. Mm-hmm. Um, he's sh- a little adult. He's little dressed adult. up in exactly like his dad. Yeah, he's capable of flying the plane. He's he, he, uh, doing it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, he's saying like c- snarky things. And it did lead, it did give an impression to me right off the bat, like, okay, this is our Mad Max world where people are not having like normal childhoods. They're, they are living in a very rough world. Um, and it it helped smooth me into watching the film and again because that was in the that was the beginning of the film leading into Barter Town, it it all felt natural there. They didn't even exploit the 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 contrast of these weird little hippy dippy kids to this kid. They do have the same they do share the same space, but there's never really any interaction there. There's never a, oh, look how different these two sets of children are that exist in this post-apocalyptic world. One that is, let's be generous and say, a little criminal. Like he's, you know, the 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 aviator kid. He's a little, he's a little criminal. Like he holds people up at the end of the film. Yeah, yeah. that's what I mean. Like, but at the same time, like he isn't like a mastermind criminal. He's just, he's just evoking, like he's just following in his dad's footsteps. He's a, he's a bandit. He's a little bandit. Yes. But he has this eloquence to him. But then when shit doesn't go right, he's a little kid again. Like, there's fun there. Mm. And then you have these kids who have no concept of even that type of morality existing. They don't They do not do anything with that, man. Mm. Like, there's, no, there's nothing stated there. These innocent children meet this corrupted one. No, no like, no, no, nothing. Nothing done with that. And it's, I, you know, what's funny as well is we have the ending. Where he goes back to Sydney, where Sydney was like this cultural touchstone point for these children, because that's where the captain came from. He flew his Qantas jet that's right, from yeah. Sydney. And then the kids and Max and all that go back to Sydney, and Max then eventually wanders off. But like they go back to Sydney, they're lighting up, they're, they're making civilization in what was the, the heart of Australia in that time. And it's like this nice little notion like, hey, look, here it is. And although I know that exists, and that's like actually very much a beautiful way of saying that Max himself has gained his humanity back because he has helped bring life to a barren city because he was able to shed his apathy and help these children for a 
non-selfish reason. Okay, beautiful. And he wanders off into the desert still, but now he has a sense of purpose. I can talk about all that, but I always block that out of my brain because I think of the ending being Tina Turner letting him go. And then having this rapport with one another of respect, and she just drives off into the sunset. That's what I think of. The the kid stuff, it, it, again, it feels arbitrary to me. Even though it's thematically resonant, there's just something about it where it feels like what it is. There was originally a concept, and then they said, let's just put it in Mad Max. So it feels stapled on. It doesn't feel like yeah. it actually even wants to be about these kids. They just happen to be in it. So, yeah, even though you could, we could clock it and say the second half of the film that we keep mentioning is probably more of the movie. It doesn't it doesn't actually give more to the movie? It just it may take time, but maybe it just felt longer. Believe it or not, <laughs> it's because they were rep- repeating things. <laughs> no, when I read that trivia point, that confirmed that yeah, th- that was the original concept of some other story, and it got tagged onto Mad Max. I was like, okay, that that says it all right there. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to go over when it comes to? Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Um. Did you like how Ironbar kept not dying and then he eventually died by giving a middle finger and then his hand <laughs> dropped? Uh, did you like the piggies? There were 600 real pigs. Mm. Good for them. That's Is that when George saw a pig and said, I need one about a talking pig? But I shouldn't direct it, but I really should. Yes, but I really ought to. I'll do the sequel. Um, You know, for all that we rag on it, I do think the film should get full marks because there is a shot where Master looks like John Howard. The Australian Prime Minister or the Australian actor? I haven't heard of the actor, but the Prime Minister. You have heard of the actor. He's literally in Fury Road. Fun fact. Well, we haven't done that one yet. But you've seen it. I don't remember him. He's a big, he's a big, he was a big villains in it, but yeah, he's, uh, he's fun. John Howard is an actor, but you're talking about the former Australian prime minister, John Howard. Yeah. I, I thought so too, but also I knew, I like that I think, you're I think, like, it was, I think it was when he was on the plane. I like when you're doing your, hey, let's give credit to one thing. And I know immediately it's going to be some <laughs> derogatory, like flippant, weird, like Oh, statement. you think, you think that's backhanded, do you? Yes, I do. <laughs> um, what's. <laughs> No, but uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, is this film deeper than people give it credit for, do you think? Because it does, it has been maligned, but also has been reassessed. Even though we may have problems with it, do you see the validity in it being something examined more thoroughly than perhaps has been before? Um... I suppose so. I mean, throughout this whole episode, you have been at least saying that the second half has a thematic purpose, um, and that the conflict there is that the execution just isn't very good. Uh, So I guess, yes, the film has deliberate design choices and executes them. Uh, So I guess you can say that, yeah, it is a bit deeper. I begrudgingly agree. I just 
find it is too Hollywoodized and, 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 and compromised. Roger Ebert and Siskel, in their review, summed it up best. Yeah, let me hear this. They were saying, this film's great. This is one where your kids will want to buy toys. <laughs> and I said, oh, right, that's correct. This one was 1985? This is a era of filmmaking, which we're still in, of course, where... Let's think about the family. Let's think about the kids. Let's think about the toys. Let's think about if we can make this into a cartoon or a TV show. You said Robo- RoboCop, great example. RoboCop, first film, R-rated, bloody violence, shooting things up. Second RoboCop, a little bit more cartoony, still R-rated. They murder a child in that film for, for <laughs> a start. And then the third one, it's 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 a children's film where kids are running around and there's a cartoon show and it TV show, it's just... Oh, yeah, Robocop did have that, didn't it? It it does that. And Mad Max, thankfully, avoided that uh, type of disgrace. And what I will say, would I, like, in terms of now, would I recommend Mad Max 3? If you're doing a full watch, if you're wanting to go through all of them, yes. Because this is the ending. Mad Max Fury Road is, is an addition but it's not the ending. Like, this is an ending. And I actually like how they end Max. He doesn't die. He doesn't necessarily become someone completely different. But he comes back to a form of what he was. But not exactly who he was. He's a father again. But not really. It's. It, I think it's beautiful in that way. And Mel Gibson's good in the movie. <laughs> Like, no, I, I really enjoy- about the performance of him, true, yeah. but he's very good. I really enjoyed his performance, yeah. Uh, he's a scumbag in real life, but I enjoy his performances and his direction. <laughs> but uh, it also, in my eyes, makes Mad Max Fury Road even better because I had to stop myself. I really did. I'm not joking. This is not hyperbole. I had to stop myself from watching Mad Max Fury Road as a palate cleanser after... <laughs> After Thunderdome, because it does make Mad Max Fury Road stand taller, because it's it's also it's Mad Max Fury Road has been praised, and we'll eventually talk about it. But it's been praised for many reasons. Uh, you know, George Miller can somehow pull off one of the greatest action movies of all time in his like was it mid seventies, out of nowhere. It's like here's a new Mad Max movie, and it's one of the best films ever made. And what is really to note is. It's the redemption of this film franchise. Like, this is a low end. Like, this is a low way to end it for for me at least, and for many people. But Mad Max Fury Road, it's like you're ending on a high. Like, there's if there's even more. Like, there's probably going to be more. But like for for now, and I'm talking right now, where we only have these four films. This this third one, it's not it's not going off on a big high. Mm. Fury Road is a big. High, exhilarating time. And so Beyond Thunderdome makes me appreciate even more why there is a fourth film. Would you recommend Beyond Thunderdome? Yeah, sure. If if you are watching it, you know, as part of, like, you know, in order, then definitely more so. But even then, yeah, I I do think that the first half is really worth seeing. And evidently, from what you were saying, the second half can be an endurance run. I didn't find it that much of an endurance run, but then again, if I watch it again, knowing that, you know, we're already beyond Thunderdome at that point, maybe then it would be a bit more painful. (laughs) 
True indeed. Uh, I always wonder with you, uh, is there a point of no return for a movie where, like I had with The Body last week, where you're loving a film, you're like, yes, this is it, this is doing it, it's, yes, this is, it's giving me what I want, and then it makes a, a choice or a turn or the second half changes into something that you fundamentally say, nope, not anymore, I can't. <laughs> recommend because uh, although like, I don't, some of its parts don't align. I don't, I don't know if I have ever hit that absolute point of like, no, this is fucking dead to me now. But I remember when we did a shoot 'em up, I did talk about how when when it was thought that Paul Giamatti was killed early on and it took like 10 minutes from that point to reveal that, no, he's still alive. I do remember talking about it in the episode that I felt this really weird sense of despair like why why am i still watching this this is this is this is no longer what i wanted and then when he was revealed to still be like oh thank god thank god yeah i i have more of a visceral thing when it mm. comes to that but i've always I, I've, wondered, I've definitely like- i've definitely had reactions where i'm like oh god ryan Oh, Ryan would hate this. I remember when we did Glass, when when when, <laughs> oh, um, when um when Bruce Willis's character was killed. I'm like, oh, I feel so bad for Ryan. Oh, right yeah, spoiler now. for Glass. Fuck you, Glass. You can suck my dick. <laughs> they drowned him in a fucking puddle for no reason. I was like, oh god, Ryan. Lo- you know Ryan the- loves that character in no, that film mini, so much. Mini review for Glass. Now that we know what we know about Bruce Willis. That's even sadder. You know, like, Bruce Willis is a guy who's going through a lot. He's making these movies because he needs money. But that was, like, one of the very few movies where it was known that it was actually something of passion. And they kill him in, like, the most pathetic way you could. It's, like, no swan song. And it's not even in a goal creatively. Like, there's a goal creatively sometimes when you end it on, like, a downbeat thing. Like, uh, you thought we're going to have, like, a glorious swan song, but instead it's bittersweet or bitter. Mm. Not in that movie. Fuck Glass. I do not recommend Glass. <laughs> Fuck you, M. Night. Check out our episode on Glass. I guess M. Night's actually a great example of how that can work. Of, like, if you're with a movie and then it loses you because he does the twists. Mm. And so it's like, I like the village until I don't, for instance. Like, that's a great example uh, then you get some like Lady in the Water where it's fucked from the beginning. So <laughs> next time on the podcast, we will be talking about a film that was recommended by one of our listening people. That's right. One of you. We are doing a film that is uh, one of the great YouTube commenters that we like to exchange some pleasantries with and has recommended movies before. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a doctor, I do yes, believe. Yes, Dr. Rochesse, I believe. Um, they recommended this one a little while ago. It's been on my radar for some time. I had to write it down because oh, it's, it's got a, a very funny long little title, t- doesn't it? Long title. Something about juice. Don't be a menace to South Central while, while drinking your juice in the hood. <laughs> uh, we will be talking about that on the podcast next time. So make sure to find a copy for yourself, watch it, and come back next time and listen to us listen to us discuss it. Bartek, a pleasure as usual speaking with you. And now that we've done another entry in the Mad Max cinematic universe, how are you feeling about getting towards the end of it? Because, you know, eventually we'll do Fury Road and then it'll be done. 
Um, well, Fury Road, yeah, that was an interesting one because uh, you mentioned that when that film came out, it got like you know, glorious praise and applause. Uh, I literally only saw it because I was only hearing good things about it. I, I was in Poland. I took my dad to see it. Um, and I do remember walking out being like, oh, yeah, on a, on a production level, that was a really good film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't have that love for it that everyone else did. So I'm curious to see when we eventually do get around to it, like, if I will actually appreciate it more. Because when people are like, oh, this is... I remember people were saying at the time, like, this is the best film I've ever seen. This is my mm-hmm. favourite film. I think, like, I Hate Everything might have said that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I do want to appreciate that one more. Yeah, and also just because you have had that very, uh, you know, that 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 history with this series, as you've said, has not been the strongest. You've seen the first one and the last one, and now you've seen the first three, and now you're going to see the last one again mm-hmm. since that initial viewing of it. And so I just wanted to at least touch base on, like, your feelings about, like, actually getting to revisit that one and maybe now you have a different frame of reference for everything because you have seen mm. yeah the like, other three. like when I did see that one guy in this film that had like the white face mm-hmm. paint I was like oh that looks like the guys from the the film that's made 30 years after this one oh by the way Mad Max uh Beyond Thunderdome was secretly a Catholic movie all along because the guy the big bold guy that uh gave Max, like, the entry into Barter Town, like, the one who helped him meet mm-hmm. uh, uh, the auntie. You know the one I'm talking yes, about? Yes, yes, I do. He was in Ben-Hur as Pontius Pilate. Oh. So there you go. There's our little Catholic tie-in. I like how <laughs> I'm not just saying Christian. Catholic. It's Ben-Hur. Fuck you. Um, the original Ben-Hur, that is, of course. Wait, not that's there. your Catholic tie-in? Yes, not Mel. Not, <laughs> not not the fact that, like, two episodes ago you kept forgetting Passion of the Christ's title. <laughs> yes, I know. Not including Mel himself. He's a bad man. Oh, He's man. no good rep for us. <laughs> Nor is the guy who played Jesus in that movie, but that's a story for another time. Yeah, well, that was one of my two questions I had left over. But that is it. Anything else? Nothing? Did we plug our social medias? Well, I was going to say, anything else other than... Time to plug those social medias. Bartek, tell us about what's happening online. What's happening online is with there. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You can find us, Spit and Polish Presents. <laughs> Type it into your browser of choice and you'll find us. Yeah, not even you don't even have to go to Google to type it in because you just type in the search bar like default to your default search engine. Uh, and it will surely take you to maybe our YouTube channel, Spit and Polish Presents, or our Facebook page, you, uh, <laughs> Spit and Polish Presents, um, or our X. Spit and polish presents. Spit and polish. Spit polish pre. Yes. Uh, and you can. Ryan's already said the email address, but we'll say it again. You can contact us directly at spit and polished at gmail That's past tense of polish. Ah, so thank you all. Remember to be kind to each other. Or Max Mad Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> Ma- I got a good laugh out of that. When you know- I saw the description for our episode last week and it said Max Mad. So wait, wait was I was going to say. Was uh, it the Podbean description or the Facebook one? Oh, the Podbean one. The Podbean, like, okay. literally, if you go to our last episode's so podcast the, description. So it's the one that's it been distributed everywhere. Max Mad. And I said, should I change that? No. You know what? I'm should not- I message Bartek? No. 
I'm going to tell him on the pod because yeah, it's funnier. Yeah. You know what? I'm not even going to change it. I think I'm going to keep it that way because- For, for continuity. Yeah. For people- you know, I've changed things before, but I'm not, for, I'm, people, for this one, I think I'll keep you it. You know, in the t- tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow land or whatever, they can listen to this in their future <laughs> world and hear us say this and then they go back and they can actually see the evidence because as uh, a great man once said, you know- need more evidence they just this yeah. isn't enough evidence <laughs> you need the evidence here yeah so earlier on in this episode why did i say it was a special day why why well let's tell you why ryan we started this podcast we were in our 20s yes this episode's coming out yeah. on your 30th birthday surprise surprise I'm, I'm already 30 so by the time this episode's released we're out of the you know decade where we started. I will be dirty. Dirty, like me. Dirty, dirty, dirty. Suddenly dirty. Thank dirty, you. Dirty, dirty, and thriving. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. <laughs> Wish me a happy birthday in your own way. In yeah. a God-honoring way, of course. Yeah, this, this is my way, by the way. Bartek's giving me a gift on the pod. It's rumbling, oh! it's rustling. It's chocolates and truffles. Oh, yes, boy. I better get out of here because I'm going to eat these original sheesh... These original seashells chocolate. Thank you, Bartek. Yeah, it's really good shit. I'll make it into good shit. <laughs> <laughs>